Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Grab your Bible or locate Luke 14 on a device that you would have, Luke 14. I'll be reading verses 1 through 14. Luke 14, 1 to 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man healed him, and sent him away. And to them he said, Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? To this they could find no answer. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place. A more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. When you're invited, go and recline at the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You'll then be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. They might invite you back, and you'd be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we recognize the power of your word and we pray today that you will teach us by your spirit of what it means to be your people and to welcome in those in need, even children. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. January 22nd, 1973, Roe v. Wade, this last week, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, or today and, and last week as well, church is celebrating it these couple of Sundays, but the 22nd, the March for Life in Washington, D.C., and the recognition of this date, and uh, President Reagan actually established this in 1984, that day and, and the Sundays around it is a time for people to gather and think about life and its value. And I have a personal stake in that. I was born September 25th, 1971 to a teenage mom. All that I know of my biological history is on a two-page letter from Nebraska Children's Home. I'm the product of a one-night stand, two teenagers met. A few months later, my biological mother found out that she was expecting. There's no record that my biological dad knows that I exist. 500 days later, There's a different guest preacher today <laughs> because the scenario of my life is exactly what a teenage mom would decide to do. Yes, choice. We've moved in the days since Roe v. Wade was established to the permission of abortion to now where abortion is women's health care almost as if that's all of women's health care. Women die mostly of heart disease, not lack of medical care for reproductive services, but that's our culture and where we're at. And so we enter into Sanctity of Life Sunday here in 2020 and this week in celebration, and I'm happy to be with you to think about the ways the church can partner together to do what Jesus says here in welcoming the poor, the lame, the, the needy, and children would qualify in this, and we can subvert the uh, radical agenda of choice and the political, cultural, and socioeconomic forces there as we flood the system of foster care as we look to the nations as Dustin and Gina are and thinking about these kids and their needs and we step up to meet those needs, we can undercut those who argue for permissive abortion. I want to look with you this morning at Luke 14 and ask the question, how much does abortion, excuse me, not abortion, but how much, uh, we know that costs a few hundred dollars, unfortunately, how much does it cost to foster or adopt? And this is a question I get regularly. How much does it cost to, to do this? And there's a spectrum. If someone is doing this internationally, if there are medical procedures involved or out of foster care, there is a spectrum of cost. But I want to think with you this morning, not about the cost, but the benefit. And that is why I wrote my book, Until Every Child is Home. Because I have recognized that as a Christian, as a pastor, as a theologian, 
there are benefits as well as costs. And all that we hear about are costs. This is going to cost you money. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost your church. I'm so happy for your church's emphasis in this regard because over and over, churches think oh, to, to do this kind of ministry is difficult. It's relationally straining. It might take our money. It's, it's ongoing. So many churches today are desiring programs that have a, a launch and a conclusion so that we can launch something, we can measure it, we can end it, and we can celebrate, and we're done with that and moving on. Those are important in churches. We need some of those kinds of ministries, and foster care and adoption are not that. <laughs> There's no end. You step in, and those children begin to take hold of your life. And sometimes it's difficult. But I want to argue for a few minutes this morning that the benefits outweigh the costs. I want to do that from Luke 14. There are a couple of sections here, and, and we'll move through them. The first section, you see there verses 1 through 6. What's the scene? We're here in the midst of Luke, and in Luke's gospel, Luke 9.51 begins Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem in 1944, and along the way, there are controversies over and over, and it escalates. The speed picks up if you read Luke's gospel, and over and over, there's these controversies that happen, and these controversies often involve four elements. The, the Sabbath day is one of them. The, the synagogue is another. That's not present here, but the Sabbath is Jesus. Jesus' opponents, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, what have you, and then Luke's announcement of what happens afterward. And here we have three of those four controversies. It's the Sabbath day, notice in verse 1, but notice what's happening. There, the Pharisees have invited Jesus. This is not the first time. Already in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees have had Jesus over for a meal. And, and here, a leading Pharisee has Jesus. But notice what's said at the end of verse 1. They were watching Jesus closely, and here's why. Verse 2, there in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. He had dropsy. You know what dropsy is? It's a swelling. It's when the, the excretory system isn't working properly, and so you swell with fluid, and because of that, there's pervasive sweat. It can cause problems on the circulatory system, so you have at least two major systems involved. It can be painful, and not, not only is it medically debilitating, it's religiously prohibitive. In Leviticus 15, this man would be called unclean. You doing the math with me? He's at a Pharisee's house on the Sabbath and he's unclean. Verse 3. In response to this, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? It seems that this man's presence there is a setup. The Pharisees have willingly defiled themselves simply for the sake of testing Jesus. Would he heal on the Sabbath? Would he violate the Sabbath? Would he do this work? And Jesus asked them the question and they kept silent. Notice how economic the healing is. Verse 4 Jesus healed the man 
He he took the man, healed the man, and sent him away. Throughout the Gospels, there are many places where Jesus will uh, take an extended time to heal someone. We'll have much more information. Here, it's just so economic. Takes him, heals him, sends him away. And then Jesus turns to the leading Pharisees who, who are there and who have invited him, and Jesus is well aware that this has been a setup. And, and I imagine Jesus' tone is somewhat under his breath, direct. Which of you, which of you in a corrective tone, which of you, if his son or ox falls into the well, which of you, wouldn't you pick it up on the Sabbath day? Which of you? Jesus has addressed the one who hosted him and defiled his own home and having this man there, and Jesus heals him. So Jesus then tells a parable and then comes back to the man who hosted him. The parable, verses 7 through 11. All these folks are there, and it seems as if Jesus has watched them sort of angle for themselves. They were looking for the best places, verse 7. And Jesus, again, in somewhat of a a fatherly tone, just teaching basic manners. Come on. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place. You, You who are parents, you look at your kids, don't really go to someone's house. You don't tell them the food is bad if you don't like. Come on, you have basic manners. Children, please. Don't recline. The, take the more, look at, a more distinguished person than you might have been invited. But look at Jesus' wisdom here. This is parental or, or like an uncle giving some instruction here. Grant, something like that. Come, the one who invited both of you may come and say, give your place to this man. You'll, you'll be humiliated. Don't do that to yourself. Come on. Be patient. Let somebody else have the better place. When you're invited, verse 10, recline the lowest place. When invited comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up higher. Come up here. Then you'll be honored. Notice verse 10 is going to be the play that Jesus makes, honor. How do we understand honor and how our social activities and the people we host in our homes define what honor means to us? It's expressed even without our words. Then you'll be honored in the presence of the other guests for everyone who exalts himself. He's going to be humbled. The humbled will be exalted. Kent Hughes comments, Jesus watched the elite dinner guests make their moves for the honored seats. The truth was there for all to see. The Pharisees and scribes, despite all their God talk and religious posturing, were a selfish, self-seeking, ambitious lot. Human honor gave them a sense of substance and reality. Human recognition told them they were superior to their fellows. And if that was true, they were also of greater value before God. The same illusion is rampant today. Salvation is by recognition. Immortality through notoriety. 
but the dinner party was a dinner of the damned. If only I can be seen. If only I can be known, especially by those who are esteemed. In my social circle, if this person is esteemed and I can host them, then my social circle looks to me. And I'm honored. Notice what Jesus says. He turns then to those who invited him. When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors. They might invite you back and you would be repaid. And Jesus discussion of repayment here is exactly what I just said. It's a social repayment. It's not just you had steak for me, I'll have steak for you. It's honor in the eyes of men. And Jesus says you'd be repaid that way. But the kingdom of God is different. And we reveal our participation by it in it by our social habits. Who do we host and why? And Jesus says, on the contrary, when you host, verse 13, who should you host? The poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Why? Because they can't repay you and your social circle isn't necessarily going to esteem that. In fact, they might think it's inconvenient. Why do you have these problem people around you? We used to run and play and do all the stuff, and now, now all you do is hang out with these needy people. You're serious all the time. But notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 14. You will be repaid. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You'll show that you're a kingdom participant. That's what Jesus has spoken about over and over. Since Jesus was in Nazareth in his hometown in Luke 4, 14, the paragraph begins that Jesus took up the scroll of Isaiah 61 in Nazareth in the synagogue, and he wrote that he had come to turn things around. The poor are going to have the gospel preached to them. The blind are going to receive sight. This is the year of the Lord's favor, and you, you today are his people. And you are here to turn things around. There's reward here. We often think about the cost of foster care adoption. And again, there's a spectrum. It can be very inexpensive to thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. But you know the reward, and your church does. So many people participating in this, and Dustin and Gina mentioning it just a moment ago. I want to set out three ways that a local church benefits from folks participating in foster care and adoption. I'm going to set these out briefly. I have six ways in my book, and I'm just going to set out three for you for a few moments here. Before I do that, I want to be very direct in this statement. Sometimes folks will hear this kind of a message and think that, well, 
if I don't do foster care or adoption, I may not even be a Christian. Or I, I certainly couldn't have a, uh, an, a, a servant's heart and a helpfulness at life point. I, I, that's not true. Uh, I want to be very clear that that's not the case. But it is the case that our social habits reveal our participation in the kingdom. And we do need to be aware of what we do socially and why. And the use of time and resources and all of the rest in foster care and adoption are a part of that. So let me set out three benefits for the local church, and you all know of some of these already. Here's, here's the first benefit for the, the local church. It's a theological benefit. As you do foster care and adoption, you have an opportunity to objectively think about what God has done for you. And as a foster parent and an adoptive parent, I mentioned I'm adopted, I've, and, and Pastor Elaine mentioned I have two adopted kids, and, and I have come to appreciate and learn about the gospel and what God has done for me more through adopting than even all of my education as an academic. And I'm not alone. Russell Moore, in his book, Adopted for Life, at the conclusion of his second edition, is writing about a birthday party for one of his adopted kids. This is what he says. I'm the man who won't be in the pulpit or a library or faculty meeting tonight. I'm the man who will be taking another photograph of my wife to glue in some scrapbook. I'm the man who will be repeating slow down one at a time as adrenaline drunk children rip open their presents. I'm the man with the plastic birthday party hat on my head and I'll wear it all evening even after the kids have taken theirs off. It's my theologian's cap. It's taught me far more about my God and his gospel than the tasseled formal scholar's hat on my shelf. That's saying something for the man who at the time of writing was the academic dean at Southern Seminary. The largest evangelical seminary in the world and he's over all academic programs and he says adopting his kids has taught him more than his hat. Because you relationally, objectively learn what it's like to experience God's patience as you deal with kids and their trauma. As you teach them the gospel, as you share your life with them, you are open to think of all that God has done for you. There's great theological development right in this church today, and there's much more to come. Second, Foster care and adoption, as a local church does this, and again, here it's not for everyone to do this, but, but everyone can be involved, and I appreciate your vision and groups and serving and community. There is something for everyone to do in foster care and adoption to help out. Those who have uh, means can help make this much easier for those who want to foster or adopt. Those who have gifts of mentoring can come alongside and spend time with kids and grow them. I look at my own church and my girls and I've seen how 
older generations, two or three generations older, taught them to crochet, have taught them to cook, have, have come into their lives purposefully giving time. So here, here's just a couple of scattered ideas. When a family in your church sets out on this journey and you're in a small group with them, get a plan to pray for them regularly when that child starts to come into their home to have other people around as much as possible, to, to eat with them, not just to bring a meal over, but stay and eat and start to share your life. Spend time. I think the, the healthy church is one where a foster adopted kid comes in and asks their new parents at some point in the first few weeks, all you do is sit around and eat with people? Well, yes, actually. I mean, we work some, but yeah, that is what we do. And we go to the park together. Come over and watch a movie. Come over and play a game. Just be there. These kids have been raised often in drugs, crime, and neglect. The matrix of adult relationships in their life is selfishness. Let's cut it out. Let's show them adult relationships that operate by joy and love and just the normal stuff of life. Going for a walk at a park, playing a game, watching a movie, eating dinner, going to their activities. And soon you will start to see what it means to share life and other giftings and abilities will come up in the church. Here's the third benefit for the local church. I mentioned theology, I mentioned gifting and rising up. Here's the last benefit. It's a societal impact as we cut or delimit the line of human trafficking that is kids in need and those kids being trafficked. We're all excited for the Super Bowl this coming weekend. But mark it well, Miami will be known as a trafficking hub this week. It's true at every Super Bowl, it's true at the Indy 500, it's true at major events. And many of those kids were once in foster care. Every author, when they write a book, and I, I detail this in, in mine, they learn something along the way. And I had to learn the horrors of the connection between foster care, adoption, internationally, kids in orphanages, and human trafficking. You know, we, we, we can't stop it. But if we flood the system, if we get those kids, it's much less likely they're going to end up in those places. Would you pray with me?